Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is November 18th. It's a Saturday. My knees are a little sore from some pickleball I did earlier. Fun pickleball, little doubles pickleball. It's fun. I I think tennis is still better, but for the time being, we will say pickleball is at least a pretty decent, entertaining sport. So, yes. Anyways, I want to talk about a pretty good amount of things, mainly foreign policy related. I want to talk about that rising amount of attacks on U.S. troops and U.S. bases in Syria and parts of Iraq. I want to talk about a shakeup in the United Kingdom. David Cameron is back. He's the guy that a lot of people blame for allowing Brexit to happen. He is back in the Sunak government, and uh, that's interesting. I also want to talk about how we're not in a world war, but it does seem like the world is at war. But And maybe if we have time, we'll talk about George Santos, too, who is still there. He's still denying wrongdoing. He's using campaign money to pay for Botox and OnlyFans accounts. Quite a guy. The shamelessness he has is almost impressive. But what I do want to start talking about is I didn't think the online progressive young Gen Z, younger millennial left could get any stupider with their hot takes on, you know, Hamas, the Palestinian-Israel conflict. But I think reality or the universe kind of said, hold my beer. I got something for you here. And so (laughs) uh, there's a TikTok trend. They've taken it off now. But basically, people on TikTok are resharing and praising bin Laden. It's mainly people in their 20s, so they were not born, or at least they were really young when 9-11 happened, and basically, basically what's happening is Bin Laden wrote a letter to, it's called Letter to America, and it was posted on the Guardian's website in 2002. It was removed by the Guardian this week after it started going, excuse me, after it started going viral, but basically... It's like a 12-page manifesto, would be the best way to put it, where Bin Laden talks about the reasons why Al-Qaeda attacked the United States on 9-11. It begins with Palestine, and basically the letter talks about how the Palestinian region is occupied by Israel with American support, and also the letter decries America, like the United States' role in global warming, American tolerance for homosexuality, and the drug culture that exists in the United States. And I think it's irritating because the reason why this is all of a sudden getting popular now is because we have this weird overlap going on where a lot of the younger far left, and actually some of the younger far right, are quite anti-Israel. Like yesterday I talked about Elon's comments on, on Jews and trying to like ruin the white culture. And then also we obviously have a lot of college students saying that Hamas are freedom fighters and that Israelis are hipsters. And it seems like (laughs) if you were young and you've basically been kind of brainwashed to think that everything Israel does is bad, what bin Laden has said, you might agree with. Like, it's definitely the Palestine stuff, right? That's the reason why this is all coming up is basically part of bin Laden's main taste and hatred for the United States was our support of Israel. And he was very focused on the Palestinian issue. Um, CNN has an interesting article where it says here in quotes, 
As a teenager, bin Laden would gather friends to chant religious songs about Palestine. His father, who, who ran a major construction company, um, renovated the three holiest sites in Islam, including the Al-Asqa Mosque in Jerusalem, which is in territory that was taken by the Israeli army during the 1967 war. So, bin Laden, no personal, like, direct connection, but he had strong religious convictions about it, so that was one of his main hatreds for the United States was our support of Israel. And so, of course, now we see kind of the younger college left also now angry at Israel and in support of Palestine, sometimes so, sometimes bringing up accurate points about how indiscriminate bombing should stop, but also at other times just completely like retconning what Hamas has done and why previous ceasefires have failed because of Hamas. But anyways, it's just insane to me to see younger generations, especially kids that call themselves progressives, kids that support women's rights and homosexuality and, you know, LGBTQ plus issues to all of a sudden now be saying, you know what, Bin Laden might have brought up some good points. And let's be clear, 9-11 attacks killed almost 3,000 people. Also, there were those um, bombings in the Kenyan embassies in Africa in 98, killed like 200 Kenyans and Tanzanians and like a dozen or two dozen Americans. We have to remember that in Indonesia a group affiliated with Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, killed more than 200 people in Bali. London had another terrorist attack a few years later. Obviously, bin Laden's Al-Qaeda affiliate in Iraq helped trigger the civil war in 2006, which, you know, tens of thousands of Iraqis died. Some would argue that he wanted the United States out of the Middle East, but because of his actions and Al-Qaeda's actions, it actually made it so we got more entrenched in the Middle East. Either way, this guy is a piece of shit. And it actually really bums me out that we're, we're in such a weird media ecosystem and a social media ecosystem that you have someone like bin Laden getting boosted by the algorithms and people are talking about him and sharing him in a, I, I don't want to say fully positive light, but at least not criticizing him just because he seems to not agree with the United States' Israel policies either. And I guess the enemy of my enemy is my friend in this case, which is terrifying Again, I do think TikTok is a disaster, and it is just melting the brains of youth. Not everyone. I mean, TikTok has some funny things on it. I've never had TikTok. I get all my reels off Instagram, so they're always like a week late because they're not on TikTok. But I do think TikTok is melting the minds, and it's putting out a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And going into a very polarized election, not good stuff. So I'm just really disgusted to see that bin Laden's letter is going out there because I think a lot of progressives are focused on the Palestinian stuff. But what about the drug stuff? What about the homosexuality stuff? Not being brought up very much at all. Moving on. I, I mean, I, I guess this kind of is part of what I just talked about. But basically, America, United States, whatever you want to call it, is getting closer to some sort of military action in Syria and Iraq. And this is because there have been a lot of drone attacks on American forces since October 7th. The Economist writes here in quotes, America carried out fresh airstrikes on facilities in eastern Syria that it says are being used by militias aligned with Iran to carry out drone attacks on American forces. American and coalition troops have been attacked at least 40 times in Syria and Iraq since early October, though there have been no casualties. So that's good. But 40 times, I mean, these are the things that worry me is that because it's clear that Iran has helped some of these local militias, they also don't want the U.S. there during this whole Israel-Gaza conflict. 
atrocious war in a sense. And so I'm worried that we're kind of playing a game of chicken with Iran right now, and I don't want to see how that unfolds. But basically, last Sunday into Monday morning, U.S. forces were attacked four times in less than 24 hours, according to Pentagon reports. And what happened here is the U.S. forces came under attack on Sunday evening three times, and that was near the Alomar oil field. They were also attacked at a U.S. base at Al-Shadadi, um, and that's according to Reuters. Reuters also notes here in quotes, multiple drones were fired at U.S. forces at the Ramilan landing zone on Monday morning. One drone was shot down, but another damaged four tents. And that these attacks over Sunday, from my understanding, came after the United States carried out two airstrikes on Sunday earlier against facilities that it said were Iran-aligned groups. And this is its third set of strikes in Syria in quite a few weeks. So again, none of this is particularly surprising to me. But I am shocked because I'll keep the news on a good amount of the day when I'm working or you know I listen to podcasts when I run and stuff. And I have not heard a lot of coverage on this. And Reuters also notes here in quotes, So far, at least 56 U.S. personnel have suffered everything from minor wounds to traumatic brain injuries, though all have returned to duty. That's according to the Pentagon in a Reuters report. The article continues, The U.S. blames the attacks on groups being backed by Iran, which is an assertion dismissed by Tehran. And I'm worried if this escalates at all, because you have to remember that the United States has close to 1,000 troops in Syria, 2,500 more in Iraq, and a lot of security analysts are just going, this is not good, and there's growing concerns that this Israel-Hamas conflict could spread into the United States, or not, not to the United States, into the Middle East, and it could really hurt U.S. troops at these isolated bases in parts of the world that are not welcoming to them. Of course, this is a conversation about whether we should even be there anymore, but I don't think now's the time for that conversation. Instead, it's like, how do we make sure this doesn't escalate? And right now, it looks like it is starting to escalate. And I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if there's a call for responding to this, which I don't think any of us want, because as I've said on the podcast numerous times, if we have a direct conflict with Iran, it would not be good. We may have a better military, better economy, better weapons, better technology, but they have a big country, and that would mean to mean a ground war in Iran. That's That would not be good. As we've learned throughout history, technology and better advancements in troops and technology related to military weapons does not always mean you win. And so I don't think we want to try to go down that road. And I don't want to get too down the rabbit hole of like Roman Empire comparisons or any of that stuff. But what I will say, Roman Empire obviously is exhausting its resources on numerous fronts, fighting, you know, at different times, the Celtics up into the United Kingdom now, what's the United Kingdom, fighting the Goths in what's now Germany fighting different groups coming out of the Central Europe and the East as well. I, I do think that we are starting to see an America that is overexhausted in terms of, yeah, Pax, Roma, Pax Americana, global police, all that stuff. It does seem like all of these conflicts are happening because actors like Hamas and Iran and, well, I guess you could say Azerbaijan, as well, in a sense, 
they have seen that the United States was sidetracked helping in Ukraine, rightfully so. And so it's been an opportune time for the world to get quite interesting. And it does seem like the United States right now is a hegemon, and maybe a declining hegemon, a waning hegemon, is, is experiencing some serious issues from about every side of the world possible. We're seeing a decentralized global order, and I think it's all coming to fruition with what we're seeing happening throughout Syria and Iran, and potentially even the Hamas attack. And to me, it really does seem like the world is in quite a difficult place right now. Obviously, we're not seeing a world war, but it does seem like we have a world at war. And I didn't come up with that. I stole that from Paul Post, who wrote an article in The Atlantic today that kind of inspired me to talk about this more. And the reality is, is that between Ukraine and Sudan, and I'll get into other conflicts as well, the past two years have been probably the most violent of any time since the end of the World War, the Second World War. Paul Post writes in The Atlantic here in quotes, Just in the last 24 months, an astounding number of armed conflicts have started, renewed, or escalated. He provides us with some examples of this. He talks about, obviously, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, which I obviously have talked about on here. I've also talked about Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Obviously, that is heating up. The Serbian military measures towards Kosovo. And the other side as well, the Kosovo, the Kosovo government also reacting in not so great ways. You also have fighting in Congo again, especially in eastern Congo. You have a probably, arguably, a genocide happening again in Sudan in the Darfur region. And you have a very fragile ceasefire in Tigray that Ethiopia just wants to break down. Eritrea is also quite involved in that. And also then you have Syria. I mean, hundreds of thousands of civilians dead there. Assad is still being bolstered by some of the worst actors in the region. Yemen, not exactly quiet. You also have the assassination in Haiti of its president. Cartels and gang violence now running Haiti. Obviously, you also have troubling governance and a breakdown in security and in the state of security in places like Mexico as well. So when you mix all that together, not great. Also, on top of this, I guess you could say the icing on the cake is that there is the potential of a war in East Asia. I don't think it's as likely because I don't think China is as stupid. Also, Biden meeting with Xi I think was very good, even if maybe you, Biden's critics will say that meeting wasn't productive because Xi is still behind our back working with countries like Iran and North Korea and Russia, and they're trying to bolster their own economy. Foreign investment Belt and Road Initiative in a lot of the developing world is still going, though slower than some thought. That all could be true. But we have to remember that China invading Taiwan would be horrible. And the reason I talk about all this is because the Uppsala Conflict Data Program, which has been tracking wars globally since 1945, said that 2022 and 2023 were the most conflictual years since the Cold War. And I've, I've been reading up on this a little bit. Um, foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy Magazine, The Economist, The Atlantic, Reuters, 
probably some of my favorite publications if I had to rank anything. But they all have some interesting articles that I've kind of taken some notes on and really thought about, about why. Why is everything so bad now in terms of global conflict? Because as a lot of my friends will say, and as a lot of people I know will say, mostly the world is better off. Literacy, poverty, life expectancy, health, food quality. Yes, all of that is better. But then at the same time, we are seeing an uptick in authoritarianism, in violence, in illiberal tendencies, in polarization. And I think there's probably three theories that have been argued that I could kind of get behind. One is that we're being fooled by randomness. The second is that the era of Pax Americana is over and the United States cannot police the world. So it seems like everything is kind of collapsing. Also, the third argument, excuse me, would be that Russia's war in Ukraine has been a perfect distraction for what we're seeing right now. And I would say, I think these are three interesting points. And I think to an extent, all of them are correct. And they all are kind of building off of one another. So let's start with the idea of fooled by randomness. And there's some interesting essays by the statistician Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And... Basically, he tries to talk about intentional explanations for what maybe some of us see as coincidence. And he, he talks a lot about how we are fooled by randomness and sometimes we try to bring meaning or, or I, I guess you could say significance to something that is just happening in coincidence. And The Atlantic writes here, back to that Post article, he writes here in quotes, Based on the fooled by randomness theory, the flurry of armed confrontations could be just a phenomenon, concealing no deeper meaning. Some of the frozen conflicts, for instance, were due for flare-ups or had gone over or had gone quite only recently. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. If you look at Israel and Palestine, they've hated each other for about 50 years now. Of course, the ceasefire at some point was going to turn into a hot war again. Russia has wanted Ukraine for hundreds of years. Historically, Ukraine was even at times part of Russia, or the empire that we now call Russia. China and Taiwan have a long history. The Tigrians and the Ethiopian government, they've had an issue boiling over for a long time. In Sudan, the rapid forces that have basically conducted another genocide in Darfur as of last week, they're the same people that did it in the early 2000s to about 2010. Same people, same religion, same cultural division. It's going to happen again. Mexico. The cartels never went away. The war on drugs continues, and the American demand for drugs continues as well. When you look at it through that light, a lot of these conflicts were just frozen. Azerbaijan, Armenia. That's been an ongoing conflict for a long time as well. So it's not really surprising. Now, the second theory that I think actually kind of plays off of this is that the international system is breaking down. For the last 80 years or so, um, America, I mean, and honestly, it's been quite peaceful. Obviously, there have been issues along the way. But for the last 80 years, I mean, Pax Americana, the United States being the hegemon, global police, as some will also say, which is not always wrong. 
The world's been fairly stable. Of course, the 21st century brought Iraq and Afghanistan, and now what we're seeing happen around the world now. So never perfect, but it does seem like the United States is drifting away from both just our public's demand for being goodwilled in supporting efforts around the world and how to carry them out. Of course, you have the early 2010s bogged down by Iraq and Afghanistan, two losing wars, recovering from a financial crisis that ruined a lot of people's lives. And alongside of that, the world has changed, right? You have the growth of China, or I guess you could say the reemergence of China. You had Russia kind of becoming this, I don't want to say like authoritarian hermit, ostracized country, something like that. But anyways, it, it seems like things are changing now. And since the world is changing and the American public no longer supports the United States being the world police it once was, affairs are changing. Affairs are changing. And it seems like you're kind of seeing like this competition between world powers. And this can be a huge recipe for disaster as well. And Hannah Noti and Michael Cremage have a pretty good piece in Foreign Affairs and it, and it seems like the main point of their article is to talk about how when there's competition between two great powers, it can lead to disorder as well because they're too focused on one another. And they don't sometimes realize that there are mid-sized, small, or non-state actors that could collide and cause more chaos because these two big countries or three big countries are so involved with one another in kind of a security dilemma. And they write here in quotes, Great powers consumed with the need to variously v, sorry, vie and collude with one another are often too distracted to respond when mid-sized powers, small powers, and even non-state actors collide. And I, I guess in a sense what would happen is you have like the U.S. and China that are trying to outdo each other. There's clearly like a brewing Cold War happening. And even if like the United States and China avoid war or the United States and Russia avoid war, their actions can kind of foment war in other places just due to the dynamics and the unwillingness or sometimes just inadvertent neglect that happens when you have two big powers focusing on one another. And that takes me to, I think, the last reason why we're seeing more of a war-hungry war world right now. And... It is that Russia's war in Ukraine, I think, was a perfect distraction. The Atlantic writes here in quotes, Consider the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan anticipated that Russia would be unable or unwilling to respond if it moved forces into the Nagorno-Karabakh region and reset the territorial status quo with America. The article writes later, With the major powers focusing their diplomatic and military resources on Ukraine, Hamas judged the international environment opportune for striking Israel. And I think when you mix all of these together, distraction, because everyone was focused on Ukraine, China and the United States trying to outdo each other, but ignoring these small or non-state actors, then you also think about declining American influence in the world and unwillingness to do much. I mean, Mike Johnson made a deal with Democrats to keep the government open that got approved in the Senate. No funding to Israel, no funding to Ukraine as of now. You mix that with just the randomness and the idea that there are frozen conflicts that can sometimes flare up. Yeah, this was inevitable. 
And again, I think the world in a lot of ways is safer. Health is better. Just longevity is better in most places. But it's really not particularly surprising why we're seeing this flare up once again. Now, I, I should probably note, just because I'm sure I'll get criticism, when you also look at the Israel-Hamas uh, war right now, I don't think you can talk about it with also saying that the Netanyahu government was too focused on self-preservation, coalition building, and also focusing on the West Bank when in reality the threat was coming from a different part. And building settlements did not help either. So I, I do think there's obviously many moving pieces here, but I, I think the United States ourselves, we've been so focused on Taiwan, on the southern border, on Ukraine, that we did not see this coming and I think that's a valid point. And so anyways, we'll move on. But it just seems like the world is a fascinating place right now. And when I say fascinating, I probably don't mean it in a good way, unfortunately. So do you guys remember David Cameron? It's been seven years, more or less, since he left office in 2016 after losing the Brexit referendum. He's the guy that decided to hold the vote I'll, I'll never forget I was sitting in Munich, Germany with my dad at like 10 p.m. at night watching the results come in, and we're just going, holy shit, like Brexit happened. And that was, I think, the first domino to fall in kind of the 2015-2016 rise in kind of a global illiberal populism. But anyways, Cameron gambled thinking he would just hold the referendum and maybe they could quiet the crazies after the loss happened, but he just miscalculated the anger and the kind of populist underbelly that was growing in the United Kingdom against immigration, against the EU, and kind of against globalization. And this is a guy who kind of went away, like kind of disappeared into the void after this, but he's back. And the reason I, I bring him up is because he's the former prime minister and he's returned to the front line of politics. And this is because Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, appointed him. And I would argue this probably is because Prime Minister Sunak is uh, desperate right now. And like, I think it was last Sunday, I talked about Suella Braverman, a hardline home secretary that was, you know, calling all pro-Palestine people terrorists and violent protesters. Well, she was fired. Rishi Sunak did fire her, which is good. And he put in James Cleverly, who is a reservist, into her spot. And this left a vacancy for the country's top diplomatic job, which is the foreign secretary. And guess what? J uh, not James Cameron. David Cameron is back. The Economist writes here in quotes, uh, where is it? Sorry. Um, Mr. Cameron's return is a peculiar one, given his record. A man who bungled British foreign policy will help shape it once more. A government trying to figure out how to repair public services has appointed the man who, more than any other, caused their current difficulties. A man who deserted his office after Brexit is now painted as an example of duty. In British politics, the appearance of competence is more important than the evidence of it. And look, as an American, as a non-Brit, and I have a lot of British friends who are not fans of Mr. David Cameron, but what I will say is that he looks the part, especially after Boris Johnson, you know, follows him and just makes a mess of it all. And look, David Cameron looks like a British PM, 
No doubt about it. But also, yes, this is a guy <laughs> who talked about losing his prime ministership, stepping down after Brexit in humiliation. He said he would stay in politics. But he really didn't do that for very long. He said, oh, I'll always be here. It's kind of like Kevin McCarthy, who said he will still be involved in a really big role after he lost his speakership. And then he just kind of disappears. Or he kidney punches people, based on some reports. But anyways, The Economist notes, in reality, Mr. Cameron served for eight weeks after, ba- after Brexit on the backbenches before leaving, when he would have been most needed and useful during the years of screeching over Brexit between 2016 and 2019. He deserted his life. Sorry, he deserted his post. Now he is bored with his private life, and he's returned. I think that seems to me to be the key of this, is that these type of people like uh, power, they like publicity, they like attention. He's been gone for a little bit, and I'm sure Rishi Sunak, Sunak's government has called needing someone, and, you know, David Cameron's like, well, it's been long enough, maybe people forget all the bullshit I did, and how cowardly I was, and actually how stupid he was to even hold the bre- Brexit referendum in general here. But this is also a guy, I mean, if you want to talk about foreign policy, he was very dovish with China. Like, remember all the Huawei stuff where Boris Johnson finally had to kind of fight back against that? Basically, like, Cameron's responsible for China's imprint on the United Kingdom. Chinese firms were were basically cajoled into investing in British infrastructure. Everything from nuclear power stations to telecoms, which, in my opinion, makes national security significantly worse. You also have when Vlad Putin invaded Crimea in 2014. Cameron allowed France and Germany to kind of take the lead on negotiating a peace, even though Britain was apparently Ukraine's, like one of Ukraine's main security guarantors. So not great there. But I, I think The Economist again brings up the best point when, when it just talks about how the appearance of competence is more important than the evidence of it. Because I, I guess when you think about all of the governments after, after um, Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss for a, what, a, the life of a lemon, basically. Um, I guess when you see the mockery of the post-Brexit referendum era, Cameron looks like kind of a neoliberal, neoconservative politician. And compared to Boris Johnson, he just seems kind of rational. I would actually argue that I actually think Boris Johnson, in a sense, was more competent in the Brexit chaos just because he was the one of the guys that led all the misinformation about it. Having a neoliberal in a system that literally denounced neoliberalism, which is kind of what Brexit did, it, it, it makes sense for David Cameron to go. And I'm not saying I agree with denouncing neoliberalism for whatever's happening in the United Kingdom now. But of course, David Cameron walked away because it was a different time. The country had moved on from him. And so that's why I'm kind of fascinated to see him coming back. I'm, I'm curious if it's because Rishi Sunak understands that they kind of need to bring a little bit more moderation or at least the the appearance of moderation back to the British government potentially because obviously the scandal ridden 
Tory party is not looking great right now. So I don't know. I find all of this quite fascinating. What I will say, though, is David Cameron to me seems like one of the adults in the room. It, it, at least when it comes to dealing with foreign policy, he doesn't seem like some of the people the Trump administration would put back if Trump gets back into power. Like, this does seem like a guy who has some fairly moderate opinions on some of the issues like Ukraine and Israel and China. And I guess to just be devil's advocate or, or even just cup half full, it's better than some of the alternatives. So anyways, uh, for time's sake, we're going to talk about George Santos probably in tomorrow's episode. But basically, there's a 56-page report that talks about how he used campaign funds on OnlyFans and Botox footnoted investigation with text message and credit card applications and charts. And he also faces a 23 count federal indictment in New York. The House Ethics Committee is referring the report to the Justice Department. So life is not good for him. But again, he is not backing down. And that's because he is just the most extreme version of this shameless way that public figures handle themselves. So yeah, I mean, we'll probably get to that tomorrow at some point. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest and have a great Saturday. Raining here. Hopefully it's warmer where you're at. Adios. <laughs>